Have you ever been interrupted when you've prayed? Perhaps you've received phone calls or text messages, screaming kids, alarms going off, thoughts of errands that need to be run. It seems from my experience that distractions tend to elevate to sort of an unbearable level when one goes to pray. It seems from my experience that I can't remember anything that I need to do, well, until I sit down and begin to pray. And my mind is flooded with all of the errands I must run. Oh, don't forget to call Steve. Oh, I need to make sure I pick this up before then. Frankly, and honestly, if I need to remember something, all I need to do is start praying and it comes to mind. I think distractions in prayer are honestly a part of the normal Christian experience living in a fallen world. And even the Apostle Paul got distracted when he prayed. And here in our text this morning, Paul seemingly begins to pray and then get distracted. But this is a holy distraction, a good distraction, a divine distraction, a divinely inspired one, in fact, in which the Spirit moved Paul not to begin prayer just yet, but to yet again think more deeply about what God has done by uniting Jews and Gentiles into one family. It was as if as soon as Paul uttered the word Gentile, for which he was not, as soon as he uttered the word ethne, which we get our word ethnicity from, as soon as Paul began to think about the nations, He couldn't help but to meditate more deeply upon God's glory in Christ and through the local church. And so in chapter 3, as Paul begins to transition from teaching to more application, and he transitions by way of a prayer at the end of chapter 3, he drills down just a little bit deeper into the foundation that we considered last week to look at it in a in a different light to drill down so as to see the glory and wonder of God so often in our christian experience we look at salvation from a personal individual perspective a human perspective We often don't get the 30,000 foot divine perspective. What does it look like from heaven down on what God is doing among us? Just yesterday, as my family and I were driving through small towns, every time I drive through a small town, I get a very overwhelming sense of smallness. People whom I will never meet, who are born, live, and die. It's a sense of smallness with that. Communities like ours, who we don't rub shoulders with, but but whom God created. And so we often in our lives look at this sort of micro level, the small level, the close proximity 
But what Paul does here in chapter 3 is he takes us on a, on a ride, if you will, to the divine perspective of the mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ. First, in verses 1 through 6, Paul gives us the historical divine view, what God has been doing from eternity past. Then in chapter 7, or excuse me, chapter 3, verses 7 through 13, Paul gives us the divine perspective. What Paul does in, in the second half of chapter 3 is, is amazing. He takes us to the angels in heaven. He goes and he says, let's go and see what angels are doing. They're not floating around on clouds. What is it that angels are occupied with? What is it that angels are consumed with? What is it that the angels in heaven can't get over? He takes us and he says the church. He takes us to a gathering of angels, myriads upon myriads, thousands upon thousands. And he goes and he says, what are they doing? But looking in on what we're doing this morning. Right now, this morning, what angels are occupied with on the Lord's Day is seeing how God is united together, every tribe, tongue, and nation into a family. You think angels are occupied with galaxies far away? No. What gets them up in the morning? What wakens their souls is you repenting of your sins and trusting in Christ and being united together as a family, regardless of, of racial background, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of economics, regardless of social class, regardless of, of education. Regardless of how evil you once were and how vile and wicked your sins were, what excites angels in heaven is God's gospel of salvation through Christ. And that's what we want to think about this morning. We want to think about this mysterious and marvelous gospel that you and I have the privilege of participating in by faith. I invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 3. If you haven't already, you'll find it on page 977 in our pew Bibles in front of you. You want to look for the large number three in the middle of the page. That's where we'll begin this morning. Ephesians chapter three. Hear the word of Christ. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me, for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This morning we want to think deeply about these six verses. And I've summarized it just in a very short way. Seems to be Paul's point. Is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a mysterious and marvelous message of grace and mercy proclaimed 
to all people. The gospel of Jesus Christ is what we want to think about, and particularly think about the mysterious nature of the gospel. We want to wonder, if you will, stand in awe of the gospel, of what God has done through Christ, to think about the different aspects. And what Paul does, as I said, is get down to the foundation, get down to the the basics of the wonder of the gospel by thinking about different aspects of it, what the gospel does to us, how it affects us. And so Paul outlines three aspects of the gospel. First, we'll see in verses, verse 1 and 2 that the gospel calls us to suffer. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a gospel of suffering. It's a message of suffering. And that's a needed message in our world today. Second, the gospel comes by divine revelation. Uh, We'll consider briefly how the gospel of Jesus Christ is a message from God, not man. So a bunch of Jewish fishermen didn't concoct the gospel. Thirdly, we'll consider that the gospel compels us to go to the nations. Uh, The gospel of Jesus Christ compels us. If we rightly understand what God is doing, we can't help but get our feet moving toward others. So the gospel of Jesus Christ calls us first, we'll see, to suffering. Notice what Paul writes there in verse 1. As Paul begins to pray for this reason, and you'll notice why I'm, do, why I'm pointing out that he's praying. Just take your eyes and look over at verse 14. For this reason. In other words, this is Paul beginning to pray. He's saying, for this reason. In other words, as he's reflecting on the gospel, he's praying for the Ephesian church. He's praying that they would know everything that he's been thinking about better. That they would know the heights and depths and breadth of the love of God in Christ. That's what he's going to pray. But before he does that, as as I began with, he pauses. He says, hey, by the way, I want, to, I want to point out a few things about myself in relation to this gospel. Now, you be, will be reminded, weeks ago, we talked about this letter of Ephesians. And, uh, and you might find it strange, the way Paul talks here in chapter 3, it's as if he doesn't know these people. It's as if Paul doesn't know this congregation. And then you go read the book of Acts, and you're like, well, Paul spent three years in Ephesus. How is it that he doesn't know these people? Well, there's a couple possibilities. Perhaps these are new converts that he's writing to. You know, it's been a number of years since Paul's been in Ephesus. Just like our church tends to, to ebb and flow and change over the years, so they're in Ephesus. It changed. It grew. It got bigger. Or it could be that Paul's writing not only to the churches in Ephesus, but to the surrounding communities. Maybe the churches towards Colossae in the Lucian Valley, like we heard in Laodicea. Or either way, it doesn't quite matter. The point remains the same. Paul just pauses to say, hey, let me point out a few things about this gospel that we're celebrating in this letter. Paul here tells the church that he is suffering for the sake of others. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Paul says, I'm in prison because of you. 
Many scholars believe what Paul is referring to here is his Roman imprisonment. Remember, the book of Acts ends with Paul in Rome in prison, under house arrest, waiting to be executed by the state. And Paul here writes to these churches to encourage them, to give them hope, and to remind them of why he's there. In other words, Paul would not have been there had it not been for the gospel. Not only had he been sent by God, he had been sent to suffer. And Paul's point here is that he has been given an assignment by God to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Peter was the the apostle to the Jews, and Paul was given a special assignment at his conversion to go to the Gentiles, to go to the nations. This is what Paul would remind Timothy In 2 Timothy, in chapter 1, he would say this, I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed. For I know whom I believe and am convinced that he is able to guard until the day that has been entrusted to me. In other words, though Paul suffered, he trusted that he suffered because he was assigned to suffer. Paul had been appointed to suffer by God and for God's sake and for the sake of others. The reason he was suffering was because he was taking the hope of the Jewish Messiah to non-Jews. And the Jews didn't like that. Friends, it is not a new thing that someone doesn't like different races getting together. That's not a modern problem. That's a long problem. Go all the way back to, the, to Genesis and you'll see how, how deep that problem is. Frankly, there has always been and always will be those who seek to destroy any type of racial unity that the gospel brings. But we've been called to suffer for the sake of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, we need to understand that when we open our mouths with the gospel, we are inviting ourselves to suffer. The problem for many of us as Christians is we've lived in a Christianized kind of culture that kind of had enough Christianity that we felt safe. Well, friends, that day is over. You might as that ship sailed. And if you want to follow Christ You need to understand that to follow Jesus means that you must deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him. And in that time, if someone picked up the cross, it only ended in one thing, and that was death. You don't go into the executionary chamber just to, you know, peek around and see what things are like in there. No, you go in there to die. And so to follow Jesus is a call to suffer for his sake and for the sake of others. Paul here is teaching us what it means to follow Jesus. That following Jesus is costly. As Calvin helpfully reminds us, so highly ought the name of Christ to be revered by us that what men consider to be the greatest reproach ought to be viewed by us as the greatest honor. That's what Paul does here. He says, I'm a prisoner for Jesus. And I'm okay with that. It was a badge of honor for Paul to be locked 
in that hole. To have another human being chained to him every time he went to the bathroom and every time he ate. But what was so glorious and what Paul reflects in the letter of Philippians, you know what's really cool about being chained to somebody? When you want to evangelize them, they can't get away. <laughs> that was Paul. In the midst of suffering, what was on his mind wasn't his circumstances, but the gospel of Jesus Christ. He saw even those who held him captive as his audience for the gospel. The gospel goes not just to our friends, but to our enemies. But notice here what Paul says in verse 2. That his suffering was a gift of God's grace. He writes, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Now, when you read that, you might think, well, is he saying like, you know, do they know it or do they not? No, the way Paul, it comes out in this ESV translation a little weird. But basically what he's saying is, you know, right? Assuming you know, right? No, they knew. And Paul's just emphatically saying, you know why I'm in prison. That it was a stewardship of God's grace. Notice what he says. He says, I'm here as a gift of God's grace, as a steward. The the word steward there means administration, uh, to administer a task that's not done yet. He was given a task. Headquarters called and they said, hey, Paul, we want you to, to do this. Take the gospel to the unreached people. Take the gospel to the nations, Paul. When God called Paul on the road to Damascus, you will remember he had to go to somebody's house. And when he got there, that person was to teach him some things. And God said, when you see Paul, you need to tell him one thing. I'm saving you for a singular purpose. And it's not for you, Paul. It's so that you'll be a messenger of grace to the gospel or to the nations. It was a gift of God's grace. Paul saw this circumstance not as something to whine about or complain about, but rather to see as a gift of God's grace. And brothers and sisters, that's the truth we want to see this morning in the gospel. Though the gospel calls us to suffering, we want to see that call as a gift from God. Suffering is a gift to be embraced, not a trial to be avoided. We have so long taught Christians that we need to somehow end around trials. Thankfully, there's many senior adults in our congregation that remind us, hey, you can get around one trial, but here's the problem. There's another one right after it. So what we need to learn is endurance, not trying to be escape artists. We need to learn how to endure trials. And see them and embrace them for what God has chosen them to be as gifts to be embraced, to be welcomed. Every trial comes to us. This is, of course, why Paul would write elsewhere uh, to Timothy again for this reason. I was appointed a preacher and apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. To suffer. Paul, here's a model for us to follow. And we need to remember that God gives us suffering for our good and his glory. Brothers and sisters, we live in a culture that is suffering adverse. Suffering adverse. We will take whatever drug necessary. We will drink whatever drink necessary. We will expose ourselves to any form of entertainment that we can gobble up in order to distract us 
from the suffering that God has invited us to. Suffering comes out of a good understanding of the of the brokenness of this world. This world's broken. It's messed up. It's fallen. And friend, this morning you will suffer in this life. And though we live in a culture that is progressively becoming more angrier and agitated towards Christians, particularly historic Christian teachings, we need to understand that we will suffer. And I've heard many of your stories about how family members disregard you because of your commitment to Christ and the gospel. We don't need to wait to some future day for suffering to begin. Suffering is here. Many of you suffer physically. Many of you suffer emotionally. Many of you suffer for various reasons. But what Paul speaks of here is not merely those, but specifically suffering for the gospel. We may speak the truth in love and tell our neighbors or our co-workers that homosexuality is a sin that leads to destruction and suffer for it. There may become a time that your employer fires you because you won't participate in the kind of parties they want to throw for coworkers. You might speak the truth in love and say that abortion is morally wrong and you will feel the weight of a society, a culture of death that celebrates the murder of millions of unborn children. Yet, as Christians, it's in the midst of this that God has called us to lovingly and winsomely Share the gospel with others. To know that there may be broken relationships. Your neighbor may never talk to you again. Your family members may shut you out. But you've been called to suffer. The apostle Peter knew what suffering was like. And he knew that he had been called to suffer horribly. But he wrote in his letter to the churches in Asia, suffer according to God's will, entrust your souls to a faithful creator. Suffering is from God. It's a part of his will for your life. Embrace it for his glory. Friend, we want to trust and see that the gospel calls us to suffer as we take the message to those who have yet to hear it. We trust God's purposes in our suffering is ultimately for his glory. And this leads us to the second aspect that we see here in verses 3 through 5. That the gospel comes by divine revelation. Here's the point that Paul's making. Simply this. I'm not suffering for man's word, but I'm suffering for God's word. And frankly, I'm with Paul 100%. I bet you are too. You wouldn't put your neck on the line for something you didn't believe in, would you? You you wouldn't be executed by the United States of America for something you didn't believe in, would you? 
You, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't dare live a life riding away in a Roman prison, a hole in the ground, chained to, an, chained to another person, if you didn't believe the message you were sharing was from God himself. That what he experienced on the road to Damascus was Jesus himself speaking. And that's Paul's point. Paul reminds us that the gospel of Jesus Christ didn't fall out of the sky, nor was it crafted by human effort. A group of Jewish fishermen didn't get around the the shore one day and say, hey, you know what? This fishing game, it's really, it's kind of boring. It's not fun. Let's, let's, Let's do this. Let's invent a new religion yeah, we'll kind of borrow a few things from Judaism. You know, we, we listened in our uh, rabbinical classes that we took as children. Let's do that, and then, you know, we'll see what happens. No. Didn't do that. These men didn't come up with the greatest plan the world had ever known. Rather, as Paul tells us here, the gospel is a mystery that has been made known by revelation. There in verse 3. Paul says the gospel is a mystery that came by divine revelation. A mystery, of course, is something that can't be figured out. It's a mystery. It's why it's called a mystery. It's a secret. And the greatest secret that humanity has ever not known is the gospel. Throughout this epistle, Paul regularly calls the gospel of Jesus Christ a mystery. He uses it at least 10 times uh, throughout this short letter. Why? To emphasize the point that the gospel, God saving sinners, is by grace and not by human effort. And to emphasize God's divine election of sinners, his calling of his people unto himself. In other words, you and I didn't stumble into God. God came to us. The story of the Bible is, is not that man kind of wonders and well, finds their way to God. Some No. Time and time again, story after story throughout the scriptures is God pursuing people. Not people pursuing God. God is in a pursuit. And so the Paul's point, though, here is to make this point that God, the gospel is from man, excuse me, from God, not man. You know, so often we're drawn to the stories of mystery, mystery novels, murder mysteries. Uh, we, we tend to, you know, come across regardless of the culture. It's not an American culture thing. You go to different cultures. They love mysteries. Right? We always tell mystery stories, uh, some secret that's been revealed. I wonder, have you ever pondered why, probably if we took a survey, everyone in here likes some aspect of mystery, some aspect of the unknown being made known? Have you ever considered that maybe God hardwired you that way? That God hardwired humanity in such a way as to be drawn to a mystery so as to be drawn to the greatest mystery? The point remains, God is the source of this mystery. Man could not have figured it out. God must have told him. Divine revelation means that the gospel is by grace. We could not have found our way home. 
if God had not showed us the way. Notice here in verse 4, though, what the mystery is about. And that's what I guess would be most important. That God revealed the gospel as the mystery about Jesus. The gospel is about Jesus. I know that's, that's hard. I said often, and I think one of the points you could make here of this whole letter of Ephesians is that salvation isn't really about you as much as it is about God. And perhaps we could make that argument for the the whole Bible. That the point really isn't about humanity. The point is really about God displaying his glory among the cosmos. And so Paul here says in verse 4 that when you read this, What he's referring to is that this letter would have been read publicly in the congregation as they heard these words read that that we're reading today. Just let that sink into your soul a little bit. That these words were read to actual people 2,000 years ago and they heard these words. He says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. That word of there, you could just put about mystery about Christ. The mystery of the gospel is it's about Jesus. It's about revealing the Son to the world. Uh, Through the gospel of Jesus, God was uniting every tribe, tongue, and nation, and it was revealing His Son. What God does in the gospel is revealing Himself to being the triune God who's united together. And so the union that you and I experience with one another is a reflection of the union of the Godhead. The glory and wonder of the cross. And brothers and sisters, I know for us, because all of us in this room are Gentiles, everyone in there, you know, we kind of miss the sort of shocking blow that this word would have, would have brought. Now, of course, there would have been hints along the way, and there were hints along the way. For example, when God gave the promise to Abraham in Genesis, he tells Abraham that I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. And in in you, that is in Abraham, in Abraham's family, the Jewish people, I will bless all nations. Or as Isaiah prophesied about the coming Messiah, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light to the nations. In fact, Isaiah begins his whole prophecy in chapter 2 by saying, hey, this message is ultimately to the nations. This was shocking. This was startling. How is it that God had chosen to work through one people is going to bless all people? Well, this is what Paul's point here. Is that through Jesus, all people are united together. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. The point remains, we must trust and see that the message comes from God. But what does that mean for our lives together? Well, friends, it gives us confidence, doesn't it? It gives us encouragement to know That the message we share is the message delivered from God's throne. It's meant to give us confidence in the gospel. 
that God has revealed His Word by His Spirit to His people. Well, this is what Paul goes on to say then in verse 5. Notice what he says, that the gospel was not made known to sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Now, you can wrestle with this on your own. We don't have time to think about it. But notice the sovereignty of God in verse 5. God reveals his gospel to those whom he wants to reveal his gospel. You can wrestle with that on your own. You can talk about it today at lunch. Why didn't God share the gospel with those people back then? Brothers and sisters, I don't know, but I know what our response is, one of humility. Like our brother Sean confessed in the prayer of confession, the gospel of Jesus Christ, when we understand that the gospel comes by revelation and that we can't find our way to God, it it puts a deep weight of humility in us. A deep weight of trust in God and not in ourselves. And that's Paul's point. That this is a message from God that we can depend upon, not a message from man. And so the apostles here, we we notice here he says again, the holy apostles and prophets. In other words, what he's saying is that God chose particular people to be messengers. Apostles were, were those that were sent with particular authority that when they spoke, it was as if Jesus himself was speaking. That's how we can say that this is the word of Christ. Because they spoke as mouthpieces of God. And Paul here mentions prophets. In the New Testament church, there are apostles and there are prophets. Prophets, again, are not speaking new revelation. They're not like speaking a word from God. That's not a New Testament prophet. A New Testament prophet was someone who just preached God's word. They just said the same thing. right? And I'll prove it to you. Just go read the Old Testament prophets. And you'll, you'll see there, not new revelation, All they're doing is pointing back to the law. They're saying, look, here's the law. Follow the word. It's already been revealed. That's all they're doing. And so here in the New Testament, these New Testament prophets, they were speaking by the Spirit words that the apostles were teaching. This is why we do not affirm and find scandalous those who do affirm so-called apostles today. The apostles died. They're gone. No more apostles. You see, if we have a right view of apostleship here, that these men spoke the word of God, and we have that office today, then the canon's not closed and God's still speaking. No, no, no. God speaks through his word, through the apostles' teaching. We should flee from such language that describe men and women today Because this unique office was for laying the foundation of the church. And that's Paul's point. He's like, listen, God set us this group aside to give us the foundation. The foundation's built. Let's move on. It's kind of strange, right? If you built a house, you had contractor come out and put a foundation. You know, they pour the walls. You had the concrete guys out and they do that. Would it be kind of weird, like, to still have them hanging around whenever you do all this other work? Like, you know, when they're putting the roof on. 
Like the concrete guys are telling the roofer guys how to do No, that'd be weird. No, don't do that. No. Well, that's what Paul is saying. Look, we have been given this office. We're going to die. And then you know what's going to happen? Our, this, this word that we received is going to be preached. Well, that's what they're doing. Or what Peter wrote, 2 Peter, that, that we, don't, we don't follow man's word, but we follow God's word. That is, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. These men were, were just channels that the Spirit used to speak to God's people. And so we have confidence in the gospel because of that, that God's revelation has come to us. That we can suffer for God because the, the, what we are suffering for is from him. This leads us then to the final point I want us to see here uh, very briefly in verse 6. The final aspect that Paul points out here of the gospel is that the gospel compels us to the nations. Paul writes here that the wonder and mystery of the gospel is not that Gentiles can become Jews. We want to be careful. The gospel of Jesus Christ isn't that we all become Jews. Like that was possible. One could become a Jew. One could do, you know, be circumcised, follow rituals, do those things. The Old Testament had provisions for sojourners for aliens, for slaves to become kind of in the family circle. Not really in the inner circle, but they were in the circle nonetheless. And who really cares? If you're in the circle, you're in the circle. I don't really care where I'm at in the circle. As long as I'm in. So there's not really anything glorious about knowing that I can become a Jew. But it is quite glorious to say, no, in fact, what God is doing is he's taking this covenant people and he's grafting in a new people so as to create a whole new people, a whole new creation. Paul writes there in verse six that the mystery, what what was hidden but now revealed is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel or by means of the gospel. In other words, the gospel is what produces this unity of the nations. So we see here in this text that Gentiles have become co-heirs with Christ. They have been given a share in the inheritance of Jesus. Again, Paul here is using family language as he did earlier. Co-heir, to be an heir of, of wealth, right, means that you're a part of the family. You, you, you have a right to own that inheritance. And Paul here is saying that through the gospel, you become a share, a sharer of inheritance. Whose inheritance? Well, Jesus' inheritance. Through your union with Jesus, you get to have a share in all that's his. We are so united with Christ that all that is his becomes ours. This means that the Old Testament scriptures are Christian scriptures. That all those wonderful promises that God gave in the Old Testament about the nation of Israel are actually ours also in Christ. Because all of those promises were fulfilled in Jesus 
You follow the logic? All that's pointing to Jesus. We're united to Jesus. That means we get whatever's back there. And we, <laughs> not now, okay? So don't start going and reading those promises to say, man, we're going to have all this wealth now. No, it's not the point. I want us to be very clear this morning and hear this distinction. Christians do not replace Israel. But God creates a new people. He has a new covenant people. Made up of Jews and Gentiles. Made up of the nation of Israel. And all those who have repented of their sins and trusted in Christ. And all of us are a family together. But Paul goes on, he says, not only are we a family, but notice what he says here. And we'll think more about this next week, but that we are members one of another. Paul changes his metaphor. The metaphor he was using in chapter 2 was the metaphor of a temple. He adds a fourth one now. From, from being a family member and citizen and a part of a temple, he uses this language of body. Basically, what Paul is doing here is subtly setting up the rest of the letter. He introduces this word body. And he says, you're a part of the same body. You're, 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 you're all together. You're, you're body parts. Hands and feet and eyes and heads and noses. And no more can you cut off your arm. Can you cut off another member of the body of Christ? Friends, this is why the local church is so important. Because the local church is the visible manifestation, the visible expression of what Paul says is ours in Christ. When we gather together and sing and pray and read and hear sermons together, and love one another together, and serve one another together, and sacrifice for one another together. What we're doing is displaying that I'm serving you because you're connected to me. This is what Paul means when he says, weep with those who weep, and rejoice with those who rejoice. Right? When you're rejoicing with your left hand, your right hand's rejoicing with you. Finally, though, Paul writes here that not only are we members of the same body, but that we are partners or partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus. We're co-heirs, we're members, and we are partners together. We are in this together. He reminds us here of the singularity of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the exclusivity of Jesus Christ, that the only way one can know God is through Jesus Christ. Christ. And because verse 6 is true, we want to get that message out to all people. And I said a couple weeks ago that we will never be a diverse church if we do not live diverse lives. You think about it, if you're the agent that communicates the gospel to others and you only communicate to those that look like you and think like you and smell like you, then the church is going to look like you. And that's why you have white churches and black churches and brown churches. But if you live a diverse life and you see every person that you cross as a sinner destined to hell, 
regardless of how much money they have in the bank, regardless of what street they live on, regardless of what's on the outside, and what you see when you see them is someone who needs Jesus just like you need Jesus, well, then we'll start having Ethiopians attend our church to hear the gospel. We'll start having people from other nations who want to gather on the Lord's Day because brothers go get coffee and when they're at 7-Eleven getting coffee, they say, hey, do you know Jesus? Yeah, I know Jesus. And you know what? I have a friend that knows Jesus and I'm going to invite him to church too so that he can hear about Jesus. Brothers, you see, sisters, you see, that's how it happens. Spurgeon once said, every Christian here is either a missionary or an imposter. You either try to spread abroad the kingdom of Christ or else you do not love him at all. It cannot be that there is a high appreciation of Jesus and a totally silent tongue about him. Many of us know the story of Jim Elliott the American missionary to Ecuador. He went to the indigenous people there, people who had never really been touched by anyone outside of their tribe. And of course, many know that Jim was, was killed by the very people. He was just going to meet them, just to say, we, hey, we love you, we're here for you, just to say hi, that's all. He, he wasn't asking there for anything, he didn't want anything. In his journals, he, he even says, I'm just not sure if we're even probably going to have a gospel conversation today. I just want to meet them. And on that day, they slaughtered him and his friends. But what makes that story of Jim Elliott so glorious is what happens after. His wife Elizabeth doesn't flee, doesn't come back to the comforts of America and the safety therein. No, she stays. Her and her 10-month-old Having just lost her husband, she stays so that she can see the gospel go to the people that murdered her, her own husband. She didn't grow bitter towards God or towards them. Rather, she persisted in taking the gospel to the nations. Elizabeth continued to love, live among them and minister among the tribes. And during that time, she met two women. And those two women began to teach her their language. And as she began to learn their language, you know what she was able to do? Communicate the gospel. Because her hope wasn't just merely to learn their language. It was to be able to communicate that divine revelation that God had given through the apostles and prophets. That divine word from God she wanted to share with them. Because she knew that the gospel of Jesus Christ had called her to suffer. She wasn't looking to live a, a nice, sweet life of retirement, but rather to live a life for Jesus. She understood that the gospel was a message from God, a message given to the church, to the nations. And she was compelled to go. She couldn't stop. No one could convince her, oh, just come on home. No, those people need Jesus. Those people need him now. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning.
your word would be clear to us, that you would propel us for your glory to make much of Jesus in our lives. Father, we confess that we love the easy life more than the life that you've called us to. Father, we confess our lack of evangelistic spirit. We live our lives with our heads down and our hearts closed. And Father, my prayer this morning for my heart and for the heart of your church is that we would live lives head up and heart open. That we would look around the people that surround us even as we sit here that are destined to an eternity of suffering in hell because of their sin. And we have the mystery made known and we remain silent. Break our hearts for our friends, family, and for the nations. And may we live in light of the glory of Christ and celebrate the wonder of the gospel today as we gather and have a foretaste of what heaven will be like. Help us, we pray, for your glory and our good in Christ. Amen.